Welcome to the Circuit of Success Podcast. The Circuit of Success Podcast. With your host, Brett. Brett. Brett Gilliland. Brett Gilliland, Visionary Wealth Advisor. Brett the Circuit of Success Podcast. Let's start the show. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland. Today, I've got Phil Kornichuk with me. Phil, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brett. Awesome, man. Good to be with you. Where are you calling in from today? So right now, I'm in uh, my office in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Lake Oswego, Oregon. I was just in Oregon in, uh, what was I there, August? August into September for the first time ever. I did a little golf trip out to Bandon Dunes. Phenomenal. Oh, nice. Bandon is Bandon's beautiful. I, yeah, my it wife is. and I were out there last year. I love it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intimidating when you're hitting a golf ball and like two feet over is like, you know, a 200-foot drop, it feels like. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's a super cool area. It is. It's very cool. So you are uh, Phil Kornichuk, as I said. You are uh, served in the 2nd Battalion Rangers, the Green Berets, for 22 years. You had 12 deployments, a Silver Star uh, honor, which is amazing. That's the third highest honor for valor in combat. Uh, and now you're helping uh, people and businesses with uh, high-performance leadership and skills through uh, Stonewater Training, man. So, uh, one, thank you for your service and your dedication to our country. It's amazing. Thank you for that. And uh, I have we have an Air Force base. I'm pointing to it. It's about, I don't know, three miles that way. So we get to see the men and women in our in our uh, you know military here every day. We go to lunch. We see them all. And so just so thankful for everybody that, that does what they do. So appreciate you, man. No, thank you. So, uh, so yeah, let's dive in. And again, Stonewater Training is what you're doing now. You're helping businesses and leaders all over the world, you know, with uh, high performance training. And so we'll talk about that. But before we dive into that, if you can, give us the backstory, man. What helped make Phil the man he is today? Yeah. Okay. So you, you, your listeners have like six hours. We'll get into it now. But uh, <laughs> I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest condensed version here. So in bottom line, you know, I was born at a very young age, like a lot of us, and uh, actually... <laughs> Uh, originally from Canada and uh, yeah, rural Eastern Canada. Dad was a pastor. Mom was, you know, stay at home wife. And um, yeah, it's at 16. I just kind of had enough. I was kind of a, a weird little private school and uh, I thought I knew better. So I left home and struck out on my own, which went about as well as can be expected. You know, my brother uh, let me stay his place for a bit. And then one thing led to another and actually ended up uh, joined the Canadian Army on my 17th birthday. Uh, that's when I first went into the recruiters. So I did that for about a year and a half. And you can probably tell at this point in life, I wasn't exactly on the uh, highway to uh, epic success. But when I first went in the Canadian Army, there was people who, who really could care less about what my excuses or my backstory was. They were just like, shut up and do the work. You know, they, right. they were leaders who, you know, I, I wouldn't say they were great. I'd say they were good. And they just held me to the standard, uh, showed me what needed to be done, gave me the tools to do it and did not take no for an answer. So I quick, really, quickly realized, you know, when failure is not an option, uh, I can actually do pretty decent. And I, you know, one thing led to another, I ended up finishing high school. And then this was in the early nineties. So the U S army had really cool commercials and I'm in Canada. I was a dual citizen. My mom's from Louisiana Okay, and you know, showed people, doing wheelies on motorcycles out of the back of helicopters and paddling Zodiacs through swamps at night. And I'm like, I need to get some of that because the Canadian army had like 14 people and nine guns. So I'm okay. like, <laughs> I, I need the helicopters and the motorcycles. You know, you're just adrenaline junkie, 20 year old at the time or 19 year old. And so I came down, joined the U S army and it was pretty easy. I mean, I've been doing the army thing for a bit. 
But again, I had leaders who were like, hey, man, uh, you've got more to give. So they saw potential in me that I didn't see in myself. And they encouraged me to apply for officer training, which I thought was ridiculous because all I saw them do was paperwork. And they're mm -hmm. like, the paperwork is ridiculous, Phil. But have you seen the pay scales? And then I looked at the pay and I'm like, you know what? I can do some paperwork. Uh, so <laughs> I threw my name in the hat. I got picked up for officer training. Uh, I went to Gonzaga University, which was just an awesome yeah. institution, learned a lot about culture there. And just it kind of took me to another level. So you're seeing this blend of academic with experiential learning. And so then in uh, 2000, I get commissioned as an infantry officer. Uh, now I am the leader. And so all kinds of successes and failures, you know, learning the hard way, uh, what works and what doesn't when you know, you're trying to you know, provide purpose, direction, motivation to, you know, 30 to 50 people. Yeah. Uh, just when I started to get the hang of that, again, leader I was working for is amazing guy named Mick Nicholson. He's retired as a four-star general. He was my battalion commander at the time. And he goes, hey, Phil, yeah, you got more to give. You know, what? where do your passion and your talent intersect? And he goes, that's, that's where you really need to pour into it for life. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, okay, well, in the meantime, you should go try out for the Rangers. And I'm like, come on, man. Like I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm finally just getting comfortable here. I was pretty happy with mediocrity. And he's like, nope. It's like, give it a shot. Like the only failure is a failure to try. Cause in my head, I had the imposter syndrome, right? I'm a high school dropout. I barely, you know, made it through that. I was kind of a, a, a train, you know, in my own mind, I was a bit of a train wreck. And this guy's telling me to try out for this elite unit. And, uh, and he believed in me and I, I trusted him as my leader. So finally I'm like, all right, mm -hmm. whatever, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I won't quit and we'll see where it goes. And I got picked up and that's where I started serving second Ranger battalion. This was the start of like, you know, nine 11 happened in this time frame. Okay. So now I'm in the Rangers and now we're starting to send people to Afghanistan and getting ready to send folks to Iraq. So for any of your listeners who are familiar with the professional football player, Pat Tillman, Oh, yeah. uh, it's the same organization he later served in, and he's he's a leadership story and a culture story in his his own right. Just an exceptional human being whose legacy lives way past him. The um, fact that we're talking about it twenty years after his death kind of says something yeah. about it, right? So, so yeah, I was there. I started deploying to combat, deployed three times with them, and uh, had some had some pretty you know intense experiences. Learned a lot about myself. Learned a lot about leadership. And actually had a, a small break in service from there, uh, where I became a civilian again. My, you know, we had our, our first child. I deployed three times, and I'm like, okay, let me let me try this civilian thing. Which I found out after a year and a half of effort, I wasn't quite ready for yet. Like, this sucks. Um, Get me back. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it, it was almost more of a guilt because I, I this was in uh, 2004 2005 timeframe, so I had a lot of friends. Uh, they uh, were going overseas and getting hurt and some that were dying. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm sitting here pretty, pretty easy life while they're still, you know, out suffering. Uh, and, and I shouldn't say suffering, but you know, overseas yeah, doing sure. work. And, um, you know, I, I had the experience, the skills and the drive to do it. So I threw my name in the hat, came back in. And once again, uh, you know, I, I told him I do anything like, like I'll drive trucks. I'll, you know, unpack. <laughs> I'll serve meals. I don't care what jobs are out there. I'm like, I, I left. I was a captain at three combat tours. I was with the Rangers, but use me as you see fit. And they are like, well, let's, let's get you back on track. 
I, I went into, uh, it's actually a military school. And while I was there, a Green Beret instructor is like, hey, man, you should you should check out the Green Berets. Go to tryouts. So I did that. Um, that was that was an amazing experience. I made it there. And I was a special forces team leader uh, for several years. And, you know, again, very, you know, intense form of experiences, wins, losses, you know, lessons learned, uh, friends lost. And once again, I had another leader who said, hey, this is uh, General Scott Miller, who, you know, also retired four star. And he was the head of Joint Special Operations Command. But he's like, hey, man, um, you know, he, he kind of heard about my team because some of the events we were in. And once again, he's like, I think you got more to give. Like, hmm. you know, you should check out some of these other organizations. And and now, you know, we we're looking at teams that I was like, I have no business being here. But once again, someone else believed in me. I trusted them through my name in the hat and, uh, you know, ended up serving in some pretty unique places uh, with some some amazing people. Left that all in 2019. And that's where it's like, hey, the Army invests a ton in leadership. I've learned a lot. Sometimes it's been from, you know, making some pretty epic mistakes with very high costs. And, you know, I was asking myself, what can I do with this knowledge and how can I share it and translate it, uh, you know, for others to use, let that legacy yeah. go forward. And one thing led to another, but long story short, that's what finally ended up with Stonewater uh, coming into being. Wow. That's amazing, man. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And, and what I hear in there is well, a couple things. One, you said numerous times people believing in you, right? And believing in you first. And I think, you know, as a leader of an organization, sometimes, and, and you're meeting with leaders of organizations, you are a leader of an organization. We have to see that, right? And I think it's our right and our duty as a leader to, to tell people that and challenge them. So when you when you hear that, my way, what what, what comes to mind for you when you hear that? Yeah, so absolutely, I agree. I think that's one of the, the key things about leadership, right, is a lot of times you're going to have people on their team that that have potential and have drive that far exceeds their current position. And being able to spot that and not be threatened by that or intimidated by it, but instead, you know, encourage them to take the next step to, you know, hey, work on that executive MBA. Hey, try this position. Hey, go to this this program. Yeah. And it, it's not always pushing, right? Everyone's got a different path and you're not always projecting on them, but seeing, you know, like, like, you know, at the time, Colonel Nicholson told me or you know, retired General Nicholson, hey, what excites you? What do you love? What brings you joy? And and what are you really good at? And let's look where that overlap is. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, uh, I don't know the Japanese word for it. They have another word for it, but it's like what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs. And then I think what you can make money at and where those four circles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, intersect. Yeah, like that's your career. They There's a cool word for it. I'm just not thinking of it right now. Um, so I think as leaders, being able to, to know your people and your team at that level and then exactly like you said, challenging them, but then giving the tools they need to succeed. Uh, and to, to me, one of the biggest honors, you know, I got to work towards the end of my career with uh, a lot of young officers and, you know, and, and even when I was, you know, in, in some of the special operations organizations, I was in charge of, you know, recruiting and, and assessing folks and training them uh, and mostly on the leadership side of the fence. So we're bringing in seasoned Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Marine Special Operators and, and leveling them up. And I think one of the biggest points of pride for me is watching where some of them have gone since then like the levels they've gone to, the things they've accomplished. And there's a little, there's a little bit of professional jealousy, like, oh man, they were really good. 
but there's also some pride. Like I was part of that journey. I was part of that story. I saw them. I I was the person who encouraged them. And uh, I think there's a lot of power in that. And you build a, a really neat, close circle that's a, a vicious upward spiral when you do it right. I love it. So that's called Ikigai. I just looked it up while you were talking. Ikigai. It Thank you. The same thing. It says often depict it as a Venn diagram with four overlapping circles representing what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. Now, those are the elements, right? Yeah. Perfect. Exactly. I like Nailed it. Ikigai. <clears throat> I wrote that down. So talk to us a little bit about the training if you can. Because I mean, you just make it sound like it's easy to become a you know, uh, in the second battalion, uh, of Ranger, a green beret, you know, you hear your Navy SEAL friends all the time talk about buds training and how difficult it is. Yours is no walk in the park. Right. And so, uh, and you're laughing there cause I, I've heard some of my buddies that talk about that before. So, so, but talk us, give us what you can, a little bit of flavor on what the hell that takes. Cause it's not easy. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a combination of things. So any of the organizations, most of them have a pretty similar, process where there are established standards, you know, maybe they're physical or technical or tactical that you're expected to meet or exceed to be part of that organization. So think of that as almost like a gateway, right? You have to be able to yep. run so fast or, or ruck so far in such a time and, you know, shoot this and do that. Uh, so there's, there's based on, there's clearly established standards and they're, they're not waverable. You either, you either they're binary, either make it or you're not. But then I think the more, so that, that's assessing skills and it also assesses the candidate's ability to prepare for something challenging. But I think what is even more important is how do you, how do you find the inner attributes, values, and qualities of an individual? Like what's their decision-making like? Where's their moral compass oriented? Uh, do they have grit? Can they stick with it? Because what's really fascinating to me, and again, I, I've been on both sides of this fence, right? Going through these different, screening processes that can last, you know, weeks and even months and sometimes, and then I've also been running them or the, the com commander for some different, you know, training aspects. Um, what's, what's really interesting to see is when you have someone who's succeeded their entire life, they were the captain of the high school football team, they had a 4.0, yeah. they went to an Ivy league school, they've got, you know, they just continue to excel and they would come into some of our processes and now everyone to their left and right is at that level, except for Phil Kornichuk, who was a high school dropout. He's only there because someone thought he could be there and he didn't want to let them down. <laughs> but um, you would see some of those people and then they would start to not do as well compared to their peers as they thought they would. So instead of focusing on the process, they focused on the people left and right. And they started to grade themselves based on how everyone else was and they'd get in their own head and, and if they'd fail once or twice, a lot of times people who never counted failure would blow up and they would just mm. pull themselves out. And it was mind numbing to see. I remember once, and he was actually a, uh, he's a world-class Ironman athlete. So physical specimen, extremely intelligent, good person, combat experience, going through one of these, you know, programs where he's, he's being assessed for, you know, service at a higher level. And, and I say higher in air quotes, it's just a different level, but it's, you know, pretty, pretty selective uh, organization. And I remember being alongside, so I was running the program and I was alongside yeah. this person and I was just doing all I could to keep up. Now, of course, when he looked at me, I had to look like it was easy. So there was a little bit of acting going on, 
But I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, this 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 guy's off the charts. Like, wow, I wish I was this fit. And that night, um, you know, he he threw in that threw in the hat and uh, or you know threw in the towel. Sorry. And um, I remember talking to him like, man, you know, what what's going on? He's like, ah, you know, I just I could get injured. You know, and I'm like, so you're yeah. you're you're quitting, you know, this job or potentially this job that you put a lot of heart and soul in because you might not even because you are injured, but because you might get injured mm. and you just sort of set back and go, OK, I mean, fear of failure is a bear. And uh, this this top performer pulled himself out. And I mean, it was, again, physically met or exceeded probably anyone else in that you know, in that course, but, um, the potential of maybe I'll get hurt. And it was really a a fear of failure on his part. Like, what if I don't win type thing? Um, and, and so that's the hard part to assess. So when you ask like, what is it about the training? I mean, you know, I'd say, well, the Rangers want you to move this far, this fast, you know, as a green beret, there's gonna be a lot of navigation up and down, you know, hills and swamps and sand dunes. Um, you know, and every, every organization has different stuff and, and I'm dated. I haven't, you know, it's been over 10 years since I've gone to anything like that. Um, but the, the, the special sauce, if you would, is trying to be able to identify, you know, the heart and the mind, like, how does this person think and, and what do they use to make their judgments? Because if you give me someone with the right attributes, if they have drive, um, if they have integrity, if they're adaptable, if they're committed. Uh, as long as they meet that physical baseline, I can bolt on any skills to that person. Right. It might take longer for some, but I will take that person 10 out of 10 times over somebody who shows up with all the skills and they're off the charts. But if their integrity is a little shaky, uh, if they're doing it for ego or for self, which, you know, you can't do the job I did well for a long time if it's all about you because you're yeah. repeatedly putting yourself at risk for others. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the thing is you know finding finding the right attributes, which I'd argue that's not just a military thing. That's any organization. Like, give me oh, the right sure. person who who's purpose driven and sky's the limit. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I've been around a couple of buddies that um, you know were very high up in the military, and, and you look at them; they're not the physical specimen, right? You talk about the high school quarterback and you know the six foot four guy, and just yeah, you look like a pretty big dude on here. Um, so you may be, I'm sitting on a telephone book. (laughs) Exactly. And the camera adds 30 pounds. Right. Uh, and so, um, (laughs) but, but, you know, you look at them, but they got the mindset, man. They got this thing up here. That's different than anything. Like they'd rip my head off in a millisecond. Right. Even though they may not, they may be my size, but they've got another gear. And I think whether you're in business in sports or military, whatever it may be, the mind is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. And and that's the, that's the challenge, right? Is how do you train that? I can train my body pretty easily, but how do I train myself to perform under pressure? How do I train myself to deal with stress, to stay calm and forget even work? Like, again, I've got eight kids, yeah. right? We talked about that. Yeah. How do I stay calm when I have a 17 year old go, dad, um, I totaled your truck. Mm. And you know, your gut reaction is to emotionally respond. And you're like, but is that the dad I want to be in the moment? No, I want to be someone else. So it's, Training, yeah, that headspace is is key. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So talk to us about the success you thought you may have or, or lack of success you thought you may have, depending on how you looked at it. When you were like in your 20s, 
I don't know how old you are today, but I think you and I, we were on the phone the other day, we're pretty close in age. I'm 46. Like, how do you define success today versus what you thought success looked like when you were, say, 25? Yeah, so so I'm 49, so we're in the we're in the ballpark there. And when I was in my 20s, I think success was much more focused on accomplishments. Like, did I make it into this organization? Did I yeah. accomplish said test to some level? Uh, you know, I wasn't really income driven, so that wasn't on on my charts. But there was kind of, hey, can can I can I pass Ranger School? Can I be the the top officer candidate in Ranger School? You know, can I get into can I be a Green Beret? And what's funny is you define that as success. And then you get in there and you realize, well, actually, this is just the beginning. Like that was mm, opening yeah. the door to walk into the, into the castle. Now I've got to navigate it. So that was 20, 20 year old Phil was very results oriented, results focused. And I would say 49 year old Phil is much more focused on, OK, what success is, is ongoing. Like you, you you never achieve complete success, but at the same time, you can be successful every single day. Mm -hmm. Meaning if I, if I have my purpose and my values nailed down and I know my roles and I know my priorities any day under any conditions, I can execute and achieve success uh, in that area. You know, I, I can, you know, embody integrity. I can embody discipline, love, you know, I can evolve and grow as a person. I can display courage. Um, and so it's independent of did I make X amount a year? Did I close this contract? Um, right. That that's a product of the process. But I think success to me is more, more. Hey, am I am I living my purpose? Am I living my values? The scoreboard takes. You know, I, I work with some different college teams, and it's like the scoreboard takes care of yourself if you have all this on lockdown. At least I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So um, bravery, courage, whatever the word is that you want to use, um, you know, again, being a silver star um, in, in our military, there, there's a lot of bravery that went there, right? You went into some serious situations, some things happened. So how do you define bravery now after what you've been through? And if you can, sorry to interrupt me, if you can kind of apply that to what bravery would mean for me, I've, I've never been on a battlefield like that, right? But bravery could be that person listening that's got to make that big phone call that makes them nervous, right? Or they got to go give that presentation that makes them nervous. And and so how do you define that? Yeah, so I, I think to back up, you know, there's there's acts under fire. And I think, you know, I like I earned a silver star and I'd argue probably several other people earned higher awards than I ever should have. Um, you know, in those same actions or in, in follow on actions. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of luck and circumstance that goes into that. And I, it, that's not me being self-deprecating. That's just completely honest. Be at the right place at the right time and don't die. And sometimes it pans out. <laughs> um, and I, I had an amazing team that, you know, they carried me. I was just, you know, where do we go? What do we do? And anyways, right. I digress. Um, let me, let me go back. So, so I think to, to really have courage is you have to, have fear, you have to have concern. And what I was saying about the silver star, like on that particular day, even though we were under heavy fire for about 10 hours, uh, from multiple directions inside and outside this compound, you know, we were, we were trying to clear, um, I wasn't particularly afraid at any point. Uh, just like you're doing work. Like it's, that's what I had trained for up to that point, probably 12 or 13 years, you know, I was fairly experienced. At the same time, 
for me, courage now is like you have, to, it's got to be something that, that concerns you, that stresses you, that you're anxious about, that you're fearful of. But I know it's the right thing. I'm going to do it anyway. So it's that hard conversation yeah. with a partner, with a friend, uh, with a kid. It's the, you know, I, I live in Portland and, you know, there, there's large homeless population. And so for me, it's like, hey, you can sit there and complain about it or you can actually connect with them and hear their story and just just be a person to them. But part of me is like, ah, I don't know about that. Like, what if what if they're tweaking? What if it's, this? you know, like you give yourself right. like, you know, <clears throat> like, I don't want to do that. Like, it, it, it concerns me. I don't know if it's fear, but it's you don't want to do it. And so I'll just kind of direct myself and like, no, you're, you're going to do this for that exact reason that it is. It isn't comfortable. It's not easy for you. You're not you're relaxed. Now, I know other people that have zero issues going up and talking to anyone. I actually get social anxiety, which is ironic because we're on a podcast. So for <laughs> me to engage in in certain elements with certain people is, is hard for me. Um, and yeah. I get you know, kind of anxious. And then it's like, okay, that's where I got to flip my bravery switch. You know, you tell me to go base jumping or, you know, do, do something physically challenging. I'm usually not afraid. I might not be excellent at it, but it, you know, the physical part, like I've You'll make it happen. worked that muscle out for my whole life, but the, the social aspect, the emotional aspect, you know, the hard, hard conversation with someone, uh, close friend you see just making epically bad decisions and stepping in and being like, Hey, you're, you know, knowing that friendship's on the line and, and, and calling them on something in a constructive way. Like that's, that's to me is bravery. And I can usually tell cause my heart rate goes to about 200 and you're sweating, <laughs> like your, your body's telling you, like you're scared yeah. of this. That's funny, but it's good, man. And so it makes me think too, for what in what you're willing to talk about here is, you know, you've been to some of the, what, what I would classify as the scariest places on earth, you know, with, with people, like you said, wanting to, they're, they're shooting guns and bombs and everything at you. Like, how do you, like you're on that plane or you're on that, you know, that Hummer, that Humvee going or the tank, wherever you're at, like, how do you get yourself in the mindset again at a whole nother level for those listening than the guy or gal that's getting ready to walk into that presentation they want to nail, right? So, but, but to them, that's their war, right? So like, how do they, how do you get yourself at an okay spot? And I know it's training. I know it's it, it, a lot of training. That's, that's one of it, but there are other things to where you can mentally tell yourself, okay, dude, I'm going to war here. I'm getting ready to get out of this thing. It's going to be freaking crazy. How do I go calm myself and go do the things I was trained to do? Yeah. So I think it's multiple, multiple levels, multiple steps, right? So first off, there's the training, the preparation, really the habits you've had in your life up until that point, you know, are you physically yeah. prepared? Are you, are you mentally, tactically, technically proficient in your job? Uh, and that's, you know, you, there's no rewind button. Like you can't go back and, and, and make that no. 24 hours before you have that big presentation. You've either done it or you have it. And, but then when you get that mission, you know, using the presentation example for you or like a, like a combat mission for me, where you're like, Hey, in 24 hours, you need to do this. So I, I was part of the Jessica Lynch rescue mission. I remember that came down and it was about a 20, roughly a 24 hour flash to bang. And it was actually April 1st when I first heard about it. And I thought it was a joke. I thought they were messing like, Oh, we're going to go rescue a right. prisoner. Sure we are. And then they're like, no, we seriously are. No, this, this is no April Fool's joke. <laughs> yeah. It's like. No, Phil, seriously, wake your platoon up. And that, that was in secondary battalion. Wake your platoon up and let's go. But um, so I think, 
you know, there's what you've done up until that moment where it's, it's go time, the mission, the presentation, the, the big call. And then there's understanding what the purpose is like, okay, what's, what's this about? And, and what's my role in it? So having, having clarity of vision and then having a plan, like planning through things, uh, don't just, don't just wing it. Uh, some of the biggest catastrophes I've seen overseas are when people who are really skilled and really proficient winged it because they're like, oh, we got this. And then they went out and it was, I've been in some pretty elite units and I've seen some pretty epic failures yeah. where people were, were overconfident. You never, the planning and then the rehearsals was always key. Even if we only had 50, like there's been times where some of my favorite pictures from overseas were working with these host nations, you know, maybe they're Afghanis or Iraqis or, you know, Filipinos. And we're, we're mapping out a mission, but we've only got half an hour and we don't even speak the same language. And but we're going through it on this dry erase board outside, you know, at night under headlamps. And then we, we would walk through like, this is what we're going to do. This is yeah. what we're going to do if someone gets injured. And this is how we're going to, if, if the enemy's not here, this is where we're going to go next. So that planning and that rehearsal and then looking at what could go wrong was key. So that when you're actually on the helicopter and you're six minutes out, you've already mentally gone through that mission and maybe even physically walked through it as, in as close a circumstance as you can and as time allowed before. So when it's go time, um, you're like, okay, this is about what I expected. Now, at the same time, things can go sideways, but you've got that reserve in your mind. Like, hey, someone might ask me a question out left field in this presentation. Someone might get really offended. You know, I'm, I might have a gaffe or say something offensive. How do I, you know, how do I recover on that? And, you know, you're working through what, what could go wrong. And then finally, on those last six minutes, so I've done the planning. You know, I understand my purpose. I have clarity of vision. I made the plan. We rehearsed it as good as we can. Now it's, we're just about there. Your heart rate's picking up, you know, physiologically I'll do, you know, box breathing. I'll kind of mm -hmm. go through a, a mantra in my head. Uh, Jason Selk's a sports psychologist. Uh, he's written a bunch of books. I've done some work with him and he has, he's been on this podcast a couple of times. He was my third oh, or fourth you... guest ever. Yeah. Six and a half, seven years oh. ago. I've known Jason for a long time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was down with Vegas yeah. with him uh, last December and just, yeah love yeah and and i've been following his stuff from a special operations background for since about 2015 i'd say okay and it's yeah. hugely applicable but he writes it for business leaders and i was like well yeah. this is good we can one of my one of my instructors actually brought it to me saying we we need to use this you know with our students to to get a higher pass rate like because people would get in their own head they all had the hardware yeah. they just couldn't get out of the way so we'll use some of his like uh the centering breath the you know, the identity statement, the um, you know, performance statement, we would do those things, the yeah. visualization. And uh, I was actually working with some special operations folks last fall, and we were practicing that work as they were getting ready to head and, and do some stuff in the real world. Um, so it, awesome. it totally applies. And, and I still use that when I, so I've, you know, doing a workshop with, you know, some hospitals here in the Northwest. And I will still do that same drill in my mind. This, you know, I'm 10 minutes out. I'm doing my centering breath. I'm going through my performance statement for how, how do I need to engage and be present. I'm visualizing my best presentation ever, visualizing how this one's going to go, you know, going through an identity statement, another centering breath. And then it's, all right, I've done all I can do. And you just have to, to let go yeah. and execute. And it's incredible, you know, because when I, when I wrote that question down, I certainly wasn't thinking we were going to talk about Jason and centering breath and identity statements. But it's it's cool to hear, though, right? Because, again, 
I'm thinking about the untrained man who's going to be on a helicopter here, and and you're going to say, okay, in six minutes, I'm going to drop you off in that field over there, and it's it's go time. You know, like I'm like, oh shit, like it's crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, but I love to hear that because it's the same thing for me. Like I do what's called Sunday planning. So every Sunday, I'm looking at my week ahead. Monday, right, Monday. Here's my meeting. So knowing today is Thursday, you know, at uh, now 1:42 p.m. I thought about this meeting last, you know, five days ago, right? And I, I knew what you looked like due to my research. And so I'm literally picturing being in the meeting with Phil. What's that going to look like? I picture my client meetings. I picture shaking their hand in the lobby. They come back to my office. We sit down in the seats. Like we've been there, right? We know that. So again, whether it's on a helicopter and you're six minutes out or you're walking into a big meeting, I think it's important to have already been there, man. Yeah, it's it's huge. And it's ironic, because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to blow off. Be yeah. like, No, 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 I'm gonna write these notes, I'm gonna do some more research. It's like, No, just stop, breathe, focus on what you need to do, focus on what it needs to look like. <sighs> Tell yourself who you are, breathe, execute. You know? yep. I love that. Love that so much. Um, talk about investing in yourself. I mean, through whether that's through hiring staff, you know, other teammates, whether that's development, that's, that's personal growth. I mean, how important is that to you and how important it is to what you're doing now at Stonewater training, like the leaders that you work with that are, that are paying, right. They're investing, they're, they're doing that. Why are they doing it? And what do you think about it? Yeah. So bottom line, I'm thinking investing yourself and building yourself. It's literally one of my core values is, you know, I call it evolution and I'm not trying to grow like a third thumb or anything like that. It's about how do I adapt, evolve and grow to become a better, better version of myself in all areas. So I take a very intentional, disciplined approach to it, where I'm looking at, hey, what am I, we all love to stay in our comfort zone. So I'm looking for what am I uncomfortable with? What, where are my knowledge gaps? Where are my skill gaps? And how can I start poking at those and addressing them? Uh, now, it doesn't mean I spend my whole time doing things I'm not good at. That's not the point of it. Like there, right. It's got to be aligned with the roles, the purpose, the vision you have. Uh, but I, I think continually continually learning, like what I think JFK is like leading and learning are indispensable from each other. He has a, a quote like that. And, and I think that's key. So a lot of the leaders who I work with, uh, it's, it's amazing. Like the fundamentals never get old, right? I, easy analogy, right. like LeBron, LeBron James still practices free throws. I think he does. I don't know him, but I assume he does. Yeah. And, and I know at the, at the most elite organizations, what we did was essentially the same fundamentals I had learned 20 years prior. They were just done with such a precision speed and intensity under any environment that they no longer look like fundamentals. But if you peel back the layers, you're like, wait a sec, I learned this when I was 17 you know, in Petawawa, Canada, like this is not different. It's just, right. well, it looks different because it's so intense and so fast and so good. Um, so I'll have people who come work with me and they will be, you know, a doctor in his fifties. And he's, he's literally like, Hey, I, I want to work on doing a better job of defining my, my life purpose, you know, laying out my core values. I want to rebuild a healthy set of habits that will propel me on success and all these different roles I've defined for myself you know, super elementary, basic stuff, but it never, it, it never gets old, right? Like you're never going right. to, you know, there's always room, room to grow, room, room to sharpen some more. 
Um, so I'll have folks come with me, you know, we'll work on the fundamentals. Some of them will come and tackle specific problems. Uh, but what I really love from the leadership development aspect is it's, you know, you can learn by reading. Uh, you can learn by reading, taking notes, sharing, you know, teaching, I think is a great way to learn also. Uh, but I think experience and especially sticky, unusual experiences are really powerful as, as long as they're linked to learning outcomes and objectives. So a lot of what I'll do is try to, you know, facilitate an experience where I can bring diverse leaders together, put them in an experience. And it's, again, it's, it's framed and it's intentional. It's not, you know, hey, we're just, you're going to be scared and thrashed for three days or five days. That's not, not the point of it. It's, hey, we're working on adaptable leadership. Here's some academic foundations. Let's do some personal work. Okay, now let's go execute this in a totally different environment, but the principles are the same. I mean, you, we've been talking back and forth about, you know, boardroom to battlefield in this podcast and looks very different. But when you peel back all the layers, you're like, no, I've got a I've got to have a vision. I've got to have a plan. I need to make sure my mind and heart are right, calm myself down and then execute. And that's yeah. no different than what I do. It's amazing. And it, it's, it's funny. I had a, uh, an Olympic athlete on here and, and I asked something similar, you know, how do you win a gold medal? Whatever I said. And, and she's like, you know, I wrote down the biggest thing I did for four years prepping was I wrote down every day what I was grateful for. And I spent 10 minutes on meditation. I'm like, well, son of a gun, right? I could have been a, I could have been an Olympic athlete, you know, but it's like, but you think about it. We always yeah. think there's that magic bullet, right? There's that one thing yeah. that's going to change it. The secret sauce, the recipe, whatever it is. And it's not, man, it's, it's breathing. It's having a vision. It's having a plan. It's doing exactly what you said. It reminds me when you talk about LeBron and free throws, I was um, on the field at spring training. I don't know. It's probably 2014, 2015 with the St. Louis Cardinals, my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. And I remember being on the field during practice and watching these guys and the shortstops were out doing, you know, like 20 backhands and then they'd go and do their, you know, the, the other side, their glove hand side. And then the, the pitchers were working on bunting. And I'm like, again, scratch my head. Like, this is amazing. This is what I teach my nine-year-old in baseball, right? These things, these guys are still doing it. They're the most elite level out there and they're just doing the basics. So if we as business leaders can just do the basics, man, it's going to be, you're going to wake up in a different spot. Yeah, I think that that's why when I'll work with, you know, individuals or leadership teams like, hey, tell tell me your why. Like, why does this organization exist? What What's it all about? Uh, and how how do you want your legacy to be? Meaning, you know, you're, you're eventually going to leave this organization or if you work till you die, then you work till you die. But what's the legacy right. after? You know, what's that story? And then how do we do that today or how do we do this that with this specific client, this specific task? And it's interesting because. For for some, not all, but for for quite a few, especially the ones I work with, it's it's not about the P and L report. It's not about the bottom line. It's they have something else they're working on now. Of course, they want to be profitable and successful and take care of their team and their clients. But usually, it was some other idea or concept. They're like, "Hey, I want to change a hundred thousand lives, you know, physically and spiritually, or you know, whatever it is." I yeah, you know, I work with a team that that is one of their visions. Um. Again, it's profitable if they do it, yeah. but at the end of the day, it's about it's about the impact they want to have, and and to center up on that and go, okay, if this is what matters, then what do we need to do today to make it happen? Um, yeah, it's it's simple, but simple and easy, they're not always the same thing. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, what risk are you happy you took? Oh boy, that's. Um, 
so I'll tell you the most recent risk I had, and this is a collective one. This is a, a family risk is so when I retired from the military, uh, my family and I, we lived in Bozeman, Montana, which is to me like heaven. Yeah. Uh, you got mountains, you got water, you're just north of Yellowstone, it's everything. Uh, they have a Costco, so you checked all the boxes. <laughs> and and my wife had a good job. Uh, I was retired from the military. I was doing what I do now, but kind of almost not not for fun. But it wasn't there wasn't financial pressure. You didn't build anything up yet, yeah, yeah. So um, we were comfortable and just just talking to my wife about hey, what's what's your vision? What's your best life? What's you know? It's kind of similar stuff I do with clients and. When we were younger, uh, before we'd had kids, you know, med school was kind of on the to-do list for her, but life happened. I was deployed a lot. Um, you know, she lost her mother. We had kids like just again, life happened. Yeah. And so fast forward, you know, 18 years later is like, Hey, you know, what's, what's your dream? What's your vision? And that kept coming up. And it was like, well, like, why not, why not try? It's like, well. <laughs> 40, we have eight kids, we live in a great place, you know, we have to move. And you know, the, the, the excuses not to were many and logical and rational. And it was like, yeah, but like when you're 80 and you look back at life, like if you didn't try, will you, will you ask yourself, man, I wish, you know, I wish I had. Man. And, uh, so we talked about it and I was like, well, what's, what's the next thing to do? And I'm, I'm totally taking credit for her risks here. See how I'm doing that. But um, yeah, once you so move she, the side, she, we bring her on. Let's get her on the button. No. Yeah, yeah, I'll pull pull yeah. her in and let. Yeah, he's much more well spoken than me, also. Right. But um, yeah, so she threw her name in the hat. She, you know, she she dusted off her books. She took wow. the MCAT. She, you know, she did okay. She did good on that. She got picked up by her stretch school, and uh, and yeah, we moved to Oregon and and began her journey. You know, she's a third year med student now. Um, wow. you know, it's still, still an amazing athlete and mom and partner and, you know, checks all the boxes. So that, That's that incredible. was pretty cool to see. Yeah. That was very but it's cool. one of those things. It was, and you know, as I say it, like it, it's ongoing challenge, right? Like your, your, your stretch life, your vision, your best you, that's not the easiest you. That's not the most comfortable you. That's right. I, I left a comfortable job. You know, I was working for another company doing real similar stuff to what I do now. Uh, we were living in Oregon. I didn't have any business contacts and I just felt pulled to, you know, drawn to start my own, start Stonewater. Um, you know, I had a previous company in Montana, it got acquired and I just worked for the company acquired it. So, you know, supporting a family of nine, a wife who's a full-time medical student, which is kind of time consuming. Um, walking, you know, in a market I had no connections in, you know, I stepped away from a salary, stepped away from safety and just bootstrapped to build Stonewater on the belief that like, I think this is really good and will change lives. Um, and I think people recognize that and see value in it. And that'll let me take care of these nine people yeah. that are depending on me to succeed. Uh, you know, that was, you know, going on two years ago and it's been good. Yeah. Do you believe in a plan B? And the reason I ask, I, I, let me, let me back up why I asked that. So I, we were on vacation recently and, and somebody said, what's the plan B? And I looked at my kids. I was like, look, there is no plan B. Like we're doing that. And this was something silly, like something stupid over going into the ocean when it was 55 degrees and it was freezing. And this guy's like, yeah, I've done it a million times. But for the normal dude, like that was cool, right? The cold plunge, the, the whole, yeah. the excitement, the, the energy it was going to bring. 
But like there was no plan B, right? We're going to go do it. And so do you believe in a plan B? Oh, that's, that's definitely going to be a both and type answer. So yeah. it's the that's traditional it, paradox, answer, right? Like, well, yeah, there has to be a plan B when you're in the military because yeah. that, that thing over there isn't going to go right. It's over there. there. There's never a never and there's never an always. So I, I guess, you know, for me, I think about that. Um, like when I started Stonewater, for example, I remember my a friend of mine, he's my financial advisor. And I'm like, hey, Tyler, does this make sense? Like, this does not seem like it makes sense. And he kind of looked at me and he's like, you know, hunger's hunger's a hell of a motivator, meaning when failure is not an option, we can do some pretty amazing things. And he was right. Yeah. Um, and and for a lot of I'm trying to think of some different examples I had, you know, so, for example, when, you know, the event where I won my silver star, that option like failure is not an option. If we failed on that, we all died and became a story on you know CNN or, you know, Fox News or NBC or whoever. Like it was. Yeah, we have one option. We either succeed and survive or there, there is no plan B. We had to fight our way out of a pretty tough situation. Um, being, you know, when I've gone to these different selection processes and these different things, you know, that I've, that I've gone through, I usually didn't have a solid plan B. It was like, hey, mm -hmm. I'm going all in. I'm leaving nothing on the table. I'm burning, you know, I'm burning the boats. Like, I'm all in. And when I saw people who were like eminently qualified, but they'd go into these different challenges or courses and they're like, well, I want to do this. I want to be a green break, but if I don't, I've got this great backup plan. I'm going to go to grad school. And the harder things get, the more attractive plan B looks. So yeah. for example, so it's one of those things where, you know, when, when we go into combat and you, you go into, you know, rescue prisoners or a hostage, or you're going to take down a, terror cell or whatever you have to have if they're not here then what if you know if this you, you know you've got to have contingencies it's an it's a no-fail mission you got to have a plan b c d e and f um but i think when you're putting yourself out there and you're and you're doing something uncomfortable you're doing something hard you're challenging your courage if you have a plan b especially if it's an attractive plan b it gets a whole lot more attractive the harder things get sure does you're like man i could call this big account i could try to close this deal like uh, i don't know how it's going to go or i could go with these safer prospects that are easier and smaller low-hanging fruit um i'm a big i'm a big fan of send it uh but at the same time you know to your point i think when i've taken high risks that you know you, you do want to have some safety nets and contingencies there right yeah. It's a terrible answer to a simple question. No, I, I think it, but it's, it's, you're right. Cause even I'd never asked that question on you're my 370th interview. And I've never asked that question because it just literally came up this past week on vacation. And I was like, huh. and then it popped in my head based on something you said. So, um, talk about you, you've mentioned the silver star thing again. I've mentioned it numerous times. Like, can you walk us through that mission just to kind of give us a picture of what happened? Your backs against like, what's going on during that mission? Yeah, so it was in uh, northwestern Afghanistan. I was a special forces team leader, and I was leading a team that was about five of my Army Green Beret team members and then five Marine Special Operators, roughly. And then we had about, uh, I'd say, 30 Afghan commandos with us, and we were on a nighttime reconnaissance mission. So this this was a little base in northwestern Afghanistan that was kind of like the Alamo. And led this team out at night. We were in three different little groups. Uh, each with between, you know, seven to 12 people. 
and we were sneaking through this village to verify that all the civilians had left. We've been told we were new to the, like the, the Green Braves were new to the area. The Marines had been there and we were setting conditions for following operations to clear this village in this valley. And we were told like, Hey, the civilians have fled. They've been gone for months. The Taliban kicked them out. You know, they dug trenches around us. There's barbed wire. Like they're like, this is unlike anywhere else you're going to see in Afghanistan. And at the back of my head, I'm like, eh, it's probably kind of like that, but it can't be that extreme. Like this is, you know, 2010 in right. the U S army, like, come on, Tren trenches, really <laughs> pish posh. <laughs> and so we led this nighttime reconnaissance patrol and it was eerie as heck. Like that, it, you know, this village was totally abandoned. Like there was ghost town. Uh, and we could hear and see the enemy moving around, but there was no civilians. And we started to see trenches and wire and bunkers. And at one point, I remember it was in three different groups or actually, no, I guess we were four. And I'm like, Hey, two were up on this high ground overwatching the rest of us. And then two of the groups were in the village kind of, you know, you're like walking around, around. those houses or little, little house type things. You're walking around them. It, exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're verifying like, no, there's, there's no livestock. There's no people. There's just bad guys with guns and RPGs. And, uh, I'm like, okay, I've seen enough. I was the ground force commander. I'm like, everyone let's meet at this, you know, there's a road intersection, there's a Creek and there's a big compound here. Let's, let's rally up there. And then we're going to sneak back to base and then we can set up, you know, we can call our friends and we can do a real operation. Cause yeah. you can tell we were outnumbered. <laughs> we're like, yeah. this kid, this could go sideways pretty quick. I was and how far are you from place. these people when you're seeing it? Like when you're, when you're like, are you like looking around the corner of a house and they're, you know, like, a mile up the road or are they like, you know, hundred feet up the road? No, I, you know, they're, they're just think, you know, a block or two away. You just kind of okay. see movement, yeah, close. You, you know, hear a motorcycle drive off here, here's some, you know, radio squawk, things like yeah. that. And so the compound as luck would have it, I picked what I thought was a really natural link up spot, which it was. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the enemy also had thought that. And so they were having a district headquarters meeting there that same mm. night. So I have one team show up on one side of the compound, think like a strip mall sized compound surrounded by a big mud wall. And one team shows up on one side, my team shows up at the other and the team on the other side is like, Hey, we're here. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're, we're getting here too on the radios. And they see some people walking towards them waving and they're looking and they're like, yeah. it doesn't look like Phil and his team. And these people come closer and they say, well, they have AK 47s and they're, they're very clearly Taliban. Well, the Taliban thought we were more Taliban coming to the meeting. So they're like waving us in. Hey, come and on then in. when they get close, they're like, wait a second, we you don't wear helmets and have those weapons. And so it, it turned off, you know, it quickly went from these groups coming together to a huge firefight in the space of about 30 seconds. Um, so the enemy, about, I don't know, 30 of them were between me and my other team. So these two little groups of, you know, 10 people each are trying to connect. 30 people who really don't like us are in the middle and they're surrounded by it. They're basically like, you know, think, you know, a strip mall slash Alamo. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it was kind of a mess. So we quickly tried to fight and establish a foothold uh, in that compound. We didn't realize there was 30 people there. We thought there was about five. Yeah. And uh, we quickly realized that we were in way over our heads, but there was no getting out now. Like we were committed. So failure wasn't an option. Yeah. No plan B now. No plan B. And they were calling all their friends from the surrounding area. So, uh, yeah, within about the first 10 minutes of that fight, I'd say of the 20 who were initially there, we had seven injured and one dead on the friendly side. On your team, yeah. And, yeah, and 
and uh, including my medic who was shot through the foot. So he's limping around trying to treat the wounded under fire, uh, refusing to evacuate. And our, our medevac helicopters came and picked up our first wave of wounded. And, you know, they obviously draw a lot of fire. And they, they came and they did a second run and they're like, hey, we can't do any more runs. Just the way their gas and some setup was, they just couldn't support anymore. Um, they're like, you guys got to ground evac people. Like that's that's our only option right now. And I mean, they were getting shot to pieces too. So it was, yeah. you know, pretty sporty night. Well, the bad, bad weather moved in, so our air support couldn't see us either. So now we have no medevac, mm-hmm. no air support. We're fighting to get a toehold in this compound that has about, 10 times the amount of people we think and um and we're on our own and then we start getting reports that these larger enemy formations are coming in and surrounding us you know our, we still had two groups that were up on the high ground and they're like uh hey we got 10 more bad guys coming from this direction 10 more from that direction uh so we're fighting inside now and uh eventually you know uh we get support from our higher command uh, to use air support, even though they can't see the compound, you know, they're very concerned about civilian casualties, rightfully so, but they're like, Hey, you know, we're only going to let you use air support if you can, you know, verify there's no civilians. And I'm like, look, if there's any civilians here, they all have machine guns and rocket launchers. Like (laughs) I've been here now for about four hours. Everyone here is angry and angry and armed. And they're like, well, okay, we'll give you air support, but you got to go verify you got to go back in and, and, and verify where the, the airstrikes are. And I'm like, okay. So we pulled off. We were about 106 yards away. I think my GPS said when the air force came in and, and, and bombed the compound that we we're initially fighting in and they, they flatten it. And so I, you know, here with my team and we're, we're, we're scuffed up and we're exhausted now. I mean, we're about five hours into this and um, I'm like, Hey, we got to go take pictures for command. And my team's looking at me like, that's, the stupidest yeah, thing I've nuts. ever heard. I go, <laughs> I go, I know, but that was, that was part of the deal. Like they don't understand the situation we're in. Like we got to verify it for them. So I'm like, I'm not going to ask you guys to do it. I'll, I'll go do it. And uh, one of my other guys, Mike and my air support guy, Erie, were like, okay, we'll come with you. And then a couple Afghans were like, they're like, yeah, we're in. Oh, safe. You know? Um, and so, yeah, it's like one of my favorite pictures of the, of all my deployments is we go up there. And of course the Taliban, who's coming, um, go, holy cow, they just flattened our headquarters. Like we got to go pull our team out. You know, they're, they're worried about their friends and their, their comrades. So they're running to the compound to, to save their friends and see what the heck happened. We're running to the compound to take pictures and we, we meet. So here's three Americans with cameras. I mean, obviously we have our weapons and we're we're doing our best, but we're we're not, we're not a fighting force. (laughs) We're just there to verify that we did right. Yeah. Just kidding. Come on guys. You know, time out, time out. Um, and they, I mean, they, they probably couldn't hit us because they were laughing so hard, but, uh, yeah, it's, there's this picture where there's two of us ducking our heads down, sprinting back. And uh, you can't see the bullets in the air. It was pretty thick. So we run back, we get our pictures. We've called for reinforcements to come help bail us out, right? Our plan B, like, hey, guys, like we're in a bad situation. Can you, you know, punch, punch out with armored vehicles, secure this road so we can get out? And when our reinforcements came out, our quick reaction forces called, uh, they themselves were blown up and attacked. So now we had to move to them to secure. But it was one of those things where it was about four, you know, three in the morning and, you know, our quick reaction force 
wasn't coming to help us. We had no air support. We had no medevac. I had wounded. We were getting already starting to get low on ammo and we're fighting on all sides. And the Afghan commando commander is like, hey, just so you know, the Taliban is telling us, the Afghans, to just turn turn you guys over and they're going to leave us alone. They said they just want the Americans. He's like, we're not going to do it. Great. But just, just so you know, that, that plan B is sounding pretty juicy to some of the guys who are, you know, watching their, their friends and brothers get tuned up. And it is easy to get overcome with the stress and go, that's it. We're doomed. There's, there's no way out of this. Like this does, yeah. this story doesn't end well, but I remember to your point earlier, taking a knee and just taking a breath and going, okay, I'm the leader. The most important thing I can do right now is, is think and make decisions clearly because everyone else is just trying to save their life. And if I shoot, I'm just, I'm just one, one shooter. I go, but if I can think and coordinate assets and make effective decisions, you know, we might get out of this. And so it was that pause and just going, what is the next best thing I could do? I'm like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta eliminate the threat from this compound. And that's where hire said, look, we'll, we'll let you drop on it, but you've got to verify it's a clean drop. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Like yeah. I have to be alive to verify it. So that's a good first step. Uh, and then it was, you know, after they did that, it was like, okay, next thing we can do is link up with these other Americans who are stranded. Um, you know, fight our way to them. And so once we linked up with them, now all of a sudden we effectively tripled our force. And even though one of their armored vehicles was blown up, it still was a big chunk of metal with a machine gun on it, which was helpful. You know, and then we did that and it's like, how do we get our wounded out? We're like, hey, we're going to commandeer some vehicles. You know, we found some, you know, we had Afghan army folks had a, had a truck out there. So we started loading our people on and drive it. We had to drive them through an ambush to get them to higher aid, but, you know, push them out. And then it was, we just fought our way back. And I remember getting back at one point, we were about a half mile from getting to this little Alamo base, our, our base, and uh, talking to the, you know, the, the, the colonel, the Fulberg colonel in charge of special forces in Afghanistan. And he's like, hey, you guys need to dig in and hold what you got. And I'm like, oh, not right now, man. I've got like, I, I'm the ground force commander and I'm down to two magazines, no grenades in my my radio is about out of batteries. Like I'm taking my wounded. We're getting back to base. We're going to refit, reassess. And you know, you can fire me, but I'm not, I'm not leaving my people yeah. out here right now. No. And again, he has a totally different context. And, uh, as soon as I got back to this base, you know, he's, he's waiting for me on the other end of the radio. And I was pretty sure I was going to get relieved. And, you know, he asked some questions and we started to send him pictures from the fight. Like, Hey, this is what we were in. Cause this is, you know, we couldn't send stuff digitally. Yeah. And the more they saw, they were like, Oh, oh okay. This is, this is different. You know, we're, this is the real bunkers. deal. Yeah. Here's the bunkers. Here's the trenches. Here's a line of my wounded. Here's, you know, all the enemy, you know, that we were able to, to take out. I mean, this was, you know, this was a rough night. And, um, what we had thought was our, our, our worst night as a team, like we're like, we're beat up. Um, ended up being a really pivotal moment in that region, you know, for years to come, it, it ended up that the you know, Taliban just got shellacked because, yeah. you know, they, they're usually that challenge in those conflicts was finding the enemy. And in that conflict, everyone, you know, the enemy masked on us. So there's no challenge finding them. They came out and, and, you know, because we had sort of that solution focused mindset of like, okay, how can we use our air support? And once we could, the enemy was all out in the open and it was, it was pivotal. I mean, it broke their back. Um, wow. there's a, one of the Marines 
who was on that mission, or he's actually on the rescue force, uh, named, I think, Golomboski. He writes a book about it called, I think, Dagger 2-2. And he, he writes it from the Marines' perspective, but he captures a bit of that day in there. And yeah, it's pretty, yeah. pretty interesting. I mean, it's one person's perspective. It always is, but. Yeah. Well, man, thanks again for being in what you are and who you are and what you've done and your team and all of our men and women in the service. It's amazing. And, and just stuff like that. I mean, there's, I mean, you could take that one story. I mean, I'm sure you do this in your business, but I mean, my God, the amount of leadership stuff that's there. Right. And I was thinking about if, if they see you broken as the leader, yep. you guys are all done, right? They, they have yep. to see strength, even if it's not full blown strength. I got two magazines and you know, no grenades and a low battery. You still got to come with a strong sense of leadership, don't you? Yeah. And if you fixate on the problem, the problem gets worse. If you're like, man, we are totally screwed. If that's your mindset, right. guess what? You're, you know, what you focus on expands. And, yeah. and instead of just taking that breath and going, okay, what's, what's the smallest thing we can do right now that'll make things better. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get our people together and let's move away from this compound full of angry enemy and yeah. popping out of tunnels at us. Yeah. And uh, when you take that mindset, it's amazing how, you know, that, that momentum builds and, you know, it, it quickly, you can turn things around quite, right. quite quickly, in my opinion. Well, thanks for sharing that story, man. We're, we're going to, now we're going to bring it down to an easier level here for you. And this is a question we were joking about this on vacation as well, but uh, if you had to be reincarnated, you get to come back as one thing. Are you coming back as a musician? You're going to control the whole crowd, an athlete. Or, or just something totally different that I don't know about that you want to do. Which, which one are you coming back as? Definitely not a musician. I just w I would not do that to the world. Uh, <laughs> That's your social anxiety. You're talking. I think that, wouldn't it be strong though if you could just take that microphone and just let them sing your lyrics, man? They're having the best night of their life. I'm a I got this. Guy no, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. No appeal of that for me. Um, okay. Man, I I'm. I'm now I feel like I'm so vanilla on this, but it's, it's funny. I was meeting with another guy yesterday and he was talking about people remember stories, songs, and experiences. And I'm like, look, I got stories and experiences nailed. Songs, <laughs> not my jam. Um, I, I like athlete, but I, I'll be honest, man. I, I like being a commando. I, I like, I like. Well, I was going to say, I might come back as Phil Kornacek. I mean, it's, you know, that story just told and I've got, you know, I'm, I'm you know, this, yeah, well, it, yeah, that would be pretty badass too. But I, I liked, I liked pushing myself to my physical limits for something bigger than me, for a purpose more than me, for other people, for a set of ideals. Um, and, and I'm not saying, hey, every conflict I was in, like we were squeaky clean, and I'd always, yeah, like no, war, war is an absolute mess. Every yeah. anyone I've been part of, and I've been part of several now, like there's, it's a mess. Not even. Uh, but, but the training so that you can help your brothers and sisters live and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, protect the nation. And, and again, to me, you know, a set of ideals. I love that. Like that, it, it felt like an awesome end game. And even now, you know, I, I try to take those lessons and those stories and those experiences as people I've lived and served with. Some are here, yeah. some aren't and go, okay, how do I take Pat Tillman's legacy and channel that into this real estate firm or in this sports team? 
um yeah yeah so really boring to say but i'd be good with doing the same life over no, again i, I just try to make man. a few different hey, decisions doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and, and look you talked about the purpose and doing it for our nation and doing it for people and your brothers and sisters and, and that's what it's all about man it uh, i may change my i may change my answer going forward well uh phil man Please thanks don't. so much for being on the circuit of success it's been awesome having you tons of takeaways here i don't normally go an hour three minutes and 15 seconds but we did it today man and we crushed it so appreciate you being on the show yeah, appreciate you, Brett. Thanks so much.